Uh, but we come to a moment in John uh, that cause there, where there's a bit of a shift. Uh, the previous chapters of John, the 11 chapters, have taken course over the space of a couple of years. Uh, but now we get to a point where the rest of John uh, virtually all happens in the space of a week. John is slowing us down. And not only does he slow us down, but he also brings the cross into sharper focus. Uh, right throughout John, uh, you'll have heard uh, the phrase something like, my hour has not yet come. Uh, the cross is always uh, there somewhere in the background. Uh, but now we are really looking ahead to what Jesus is going to do on the cross. Uh, you may have uh, heard how John did it in our passage. He does that uh, in a couple of ways. Uh, the first is the time frame that he gives us, six days before the Passover. For John to frame uh, this story in context of the time of the Passover l- makes us look ahead at what the Passover means. It is where the blood of the Lamb saves the people of God from death. And so we have uh, in our minds, in the minds of those John is writing to, the cross and what will happen and be achieved there. Again, the blood of the Lamb. Uh, We also start this uh, section where time really slows down with an anointing, an anointing for burial, as Jesus points out, looking forward to what will happen in just a week from these events. And so as we uh, journey through John, we're taking a bit of a pause, actually, but as we journey through the rest of John, We'll see the cross brought closer to the foreground into sharper focus. And it will help us frame how we look at the rest of John. Now for this story in particular, I want us to ask ourselves a question and maybe take a moment to consider it. What defines you? What is your identity in? Uh, Or it may not be a what, but rather a who. Who defines you? Who is your identity in? It's very common and very easy for us to have our identities wrapped up in other people. Uh, So if you were to uh, travel away somewhere to to meet your family, uh, if your family were to introduce you to others, they may say, oh, this is my brother or sister. Uh, You're known in relation to somebody else. Uh, We see this uh, if you, for some reason, Uh, waste a lot of time in front of reality TV, you'll see a lot of these uh, celebrities who appear there are the brothers or sisters of celebrities, and that's how they're famous. Uh, If you watch sports, you'll know uh, a lot of sports stars that come up and are uh, famed as the son or daughter of another sports star. Uh, At this moment, uh, I have to, as a preacher, not shy away from the hard truth and say congratulations to Scotland on your performances so far. Uh, I have spoken about the Scottish rugby team many times, and this is the first positive thing I've said from the front. Uh, I'm sure you're delighted with how it's going, uh, and I'm sure uh, last week's win, the one against England, is particularly satisfying. Uh, One reason it may be particularly satisfying uh, is to beat uh, the English captain, Owen Farrell. Uh, But if uh, if you follow rugby closely, you'll know that he is the son of the Ireland head coach, Andy Farrell. Uh, who used to play uh, rugby league and rugby union for England. Uh, so when Owen Farrell would have been uh, coming up as a youngster, he would have often been referred to as the son of Andy Farrell. His identity uh, will have been wrapped up in somebody else. Uh, now not so much as a star in his own right. These associations we make with others uh, generally come from afar. Uh, once we actually get to know a person, we don't see them purely as somebody related to somebody else. But I want us to consider, who defines us? 
if we want to diagnose who that is, there's a couple of questions that might be helpful. Who do we give ourselves to? That is time, energy, money, prayers, words, thoughts. And who do we speak about? To frame those questions more biblically, who do we worship? And who do we witness about? Our story today in John shows us two people whose identities have become wrapped up in Jesus. We see Mary who wholeheartedly worships Jesus. And in Lazarus, we see somebody who is a witness about him. Their identity has shifted from whatever it was before to being all about Jesus. And my hope as we listen to God together is that he'll show us how ours can be the same. How our story, how our worship and witness can all be about Jesus Christ. So look at Mary first. Uh, She is our example of wholehearted worship. And so there's a couple questions we want to ask her to figure out what that's all about. The first is, who does she worship? And the second uh, is, how does she worship? Now, it's really important that we get those questions in the right order. uh, Because who she worships will define how she is to worship him or worship them. Uh, If you uh, were to take somebody out for their birthday to honor them, uh, if you took them to something they really didn't enjoy that didn't reflect them, you couldn't say you were really honoring them properly. Rather, you take them to something they would enjoy. If we are to honor and worship God, we are to do so in a way that reflects him in a way that he likes. The way Mary worships Jesus is to give him her all because she has seen in Jesus a God who has given her his all. There's a couple of ways that she sees Jesus as this God who gives her her all. Uh, The first is in Jesus' presence with her, uh, not just in the moment, but in general, in the incarnation. And the second is in his death that she anoints him for. Uh, so look with me again at the start of the passage. Uh, this is uh, John twelve one. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. It's an important time of the year, uh, of course, looking ahead to Passover for them. And Jesus, in that important time, has chosen to be with them in their home, a place where he is welcome and loved and feels at home. His reclining at the table with them is a perfect fulfillment of the words we read at the start of John in 1.14. Familiar words, and I'll read the message paraphrase of them. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. This man gathering with them for this meal is God. In flesh and blood, in their neighborhoods, his glory visible, his generosity is evident. He came there simply to eat and be present with those that he loved. Now, physically, he's been on a little bit of journey uh, from Ephraim to Bethany. It's about a day's journey. Uh, Ephraim's just to the north of Jerusalem and Bethany to the southeast. He's obviously uh, given some time and energy to be present with them. But it's just a tiny picture of a far bigger picture 
of the love Jesus shows for his people and how far he will travel to be with them. Of course, we know his greatest uh, journey will be all the way from the riches of heaven to the mess and the muck of mankind. And that says far more. It tells Mary that this God gathering with them is a God of compassion who looks on a struggling, a hurting and a sinful people crying out for a savior. And he's moved, moved to the point that he gives them the very best thing he can give them. That is himself. That he would with joy come from heaven all the way to earth. The sacrifice that he made to put on flesh and to move into the neighborhoods. First thing Jesus gives to Mary is his presence with her. Not only does he give his life to be with her, but he gave up his life for her too. Uh, Jesus says in verse 7 that the perfume is anointing him uh, for his burial or could be kept for his burial. Uh, in the custom of the Jews at the time, you would anoint a body with various fragrances uh, after they die. Uh, we see that happening, or the attempts at that happening later on in John 19, after Jesus does die. Jesus is anticipating the day, a week from when this takes place, where he's going to be on his way to the grave. Jesus willingly heading to the cross is the ultimate act of him giving himself. He gives the very best, the very most he could possibly give in that he gives his whole life. He pays uh, for her a debt that he did not owe. He, though innocent, receives the punishment in place of a guilty woman. He, the one who is the giver of life, embraces a death he did not deserve so that she won't have to. This Jesus gives her all, gives his all. He gives his life to her. That God Mary worships is a giving God, a God who gives it all, even to the point of the death of his own son. And this God, thankfully, has not changed. This story of what he has done for Mary in the giving of himself, of his presence and of his own life is a story that can have our name in it too. He has given himself not only to Mary, but to the whole world. And that means we get to worship a God who is delighted to dwell with us, who is just at home in our tables for dinner as we gather together, as he is in some sort of religious building, who is pleased and delighted to dwell with us in the normal everyday moments. Even the moments we may uh, consider uh, insignificant the moments we consider hard or scary, he is pleased to be dwelling with us there. So tomorrow, if a Monday morning meeting uh, brings nerves or anxiety, if there are exam halls to go to, if there are birthday dinners to have, if there are gravesides to be at, Jesus is a God who gives himself to you to be there. He is pleased to be with you. He's pleased to gather with us this morning. He'll be pleased to go with us as we go out the doors later. And it's a gift. A gift for us to accept that he is with us. We also get to celebrate that we are the recipients of that gift of Jesus' life given up. 
We shared that same debt that Mary had. We shared the guilt. We shared a destiny to die. We, but we have shared in the receiving of this gift of Jesus willingly given up to the cross for us. He has made a way, fought the fight, and he has given himself to us. Mary's first, uh, the first thing Mary does is recognize who this God is, the giving God. And on recognizing who he is, she is compelled to worship him. And the way she worships reflects him in that it gives back to him. God gives her her best, so she gives her best back to him. Now, what she gives uh, is detailed for us in verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Uh, Judas, uh, thank, helpfully, uh, so we can thank Judas for something, uh, tells us just how expensive this ointment is. Uh, 300 denarii, uh, you'll probably have a little footnote at the bottom of your Bible that tells you what that's worth. It's essentially, uh, for an average person, it is a year's wage. Uh, you may uh, very quickly do in the maths what that is, uh, doing your head the maths for what that is for you. Uh, but it's expensive. Uh, particularly uh, for, many, for many around who are struggling uh, day to day, to see somebody give away all of this in one go, or at least most of a bottle, is huge. It's expensive. If you were lucky enough to have such an expensive bottle of perfume in your house, it's something you'd save for the most special of occasions. And she just gives it freely to Jesus. And look at what part of Jesus she anoints as well. Uh, she anoints just his feet. Uh, you'll know uh, probably that they walked around in sandals, uh, that foot washing was a common part of their experience. Uh, what that tells us is that feet were often pretty disgusting and smelly. Uh, by this point, uh, Jesus' feet will have already been washed uh, in a regular way, so they're not disgusting and smelly now. But they're going to get disgusting and smelly pretty soon. Uh, Jesus is going to be walking around the next day. Well, he's, got a track to, well, he's got a walk to Jerusalem to come the next few days. The point is Jesus' feet are going to get really smelly again. And that smell of the perfume will not be there any longer. All that year's wages given uh, to be over in just a few days. She's not anointing his feet with expensive perfume because she's stupid and she doesn't realize that. She just realizes that her gift, the very best that she can give, is still inadequate. You may remember uh, back in John 1, John the Baptist declaring that he is unworthy even to untie the sandals of Jesus. Mary shares that attitude. She comes humbly. She realizes her unworthiness and she comes to worship. And how precious must she see Jesus to be? if she gives her best to just his feet. What sort of anointing would you need to anoint Jesus' head? Uh, kings uh, and high priests uh, were anointed with oil before they began their service. It was common. Mary anoints his feet. The anointing Jesus receives on his head is not of oil, but it is a crown of thorns. that he chose for us because he is a God who gives to us.
After anointing his feet, Mary pulls down her hair and wipes them. Uh, to uh, explain the significance of this, I'm just going to uh, share from a commentator who phrases it better than I could. He describes the act of wiping his feet with her hair like this. Adding to the sacrifice of the oil itself, women in this era, era usually kept their hair covered in public. Mary is using her hair, not a towel or a rag, to wipe Jesus' feet. While that image is merely odd to modern-day eyes, in that era it was a deeply intimate, self-exposing act, putting her in a position of lowliness and quasi-nudity. This doesn't imply any sexual component to Mary's action whatsoever. That would also be a modern misunderstanding. Rather, Mary's behavior was uninhibited worship and submission to Christ. There is no deeper gift she could give to Jesus. She gives all that she has, and she gives all that she is. She says to him, uh, she lays herself before him. She surrenders all to the one who surrendered all to her. Her worship of Jesus uh, was so deep and profound that it filled uh, the whole house with the fragrance of the perfume, again in verse 3. A pleasing sacrifice, uh, if you take a survey right throughout the whole Bible, is often described, uh, or we know it's a pleasing sacrifice, by the pleasing aroma that it gives to God. Uh, so way back in the story of Cain and Abel, uh, Cain gave some of the fruit of the ground, uh, but not his best. Uh, still a nice enough offering, but his offer was displeasing to God. Abel gave the firstborn of his animals, the fat portions, the very best that he had, and his offering was described as pleasing to God. Now, fruit and fat animals are both goods. Uh, they are both deep, decent sacrifices. But one of them is the giving of somebody's all to God, and one of them is just the giving of some. The giving of some is not described as goods. The giving of all is. The point there is that uh, it is not necessarily the form uh, that our worship takes or the quality of how it is. Uh, that means if you, uh, like me, are not the most natural singer, uh, it doesn't come that easily. That's okay. God does not look on our singing as displeasing because of how it sounds. He looks on it as displeasing or pleasing based on the heart behind it. If as we sing those words, our heart says, yes, these are the words that we treasure most. That we are so desperate for Jesus. That offering of singing is pleasing to him. The beautiful fragrance filled the room. It's a picture of faithful, sacrificial worship. Mary offers Jesus her all. I wonder if uh, any of you are doing one of the Bible reading plans. Uh, by now, uh, uh, you might be in Leviticus or you might have just finished Leviticus. Uh, and if so, fair play. Uh, you may get pretty exhausted reading through it, seeing all the different uh, hoops they'd have to jump through for their worship. Uh, they'd have to sacrifice particular animals in particular ways. They'd have to figure out what kind of sin they've done to see what kind of offering they need to bring. And we often look back at the Old Testament and think, wow, worship of God took a lot. They had so much to do. And we often, or at least I do, uh, neglect to see what New Testament worship requires of us. Something Paul lays out for us in the first verse of Romans chapter 12. 
He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, uh, God's mercy being uh, the wonderful truths he said in Romans 1 to 11, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That is your true and proper worship. Uh, by bodies, doesn't just mean physical body, but it means all of us, everything we have. If we want to truly worship God, it means we give him our all. Everything. We lay it all before him. As we consider our own lives of worship, I imagine we can all fairly quickly recognize that we fail to do that. That there are potentially areas of our life that we struggle to give up. Or there are just uh, consistent things that we fail uh, to give to Jesus, even if our heart is sometimes in the right place. If we want to worship God with our all, we will not get there if we are motivated, though, by guilt. If we just recognize that we haven't done it so we feel like we should do it, we won't get very far. Now, Paul uh, tells us how we are to worship our all. It's to, in view of God's mercy. So if we are struggling to worship God with our all, the solution that he offers to us is go back and look at what Jesus has done again. Uh, go back and look at that mercy again. Go back and soak in that again. See this God who has freely and with love given us his all. And we will be compelled like Mary to worship him. The other uh, motivation I'd like to offer for us to worship him. Is to just consider again that interaction between Mary and Jesus. Because it's just beautiful. That intimacy. That love. Greater and deeper and more profound than any relationship we could have here is to truly know and treasure Jesus. It's a privilege and an honor. How wonderful it would be to have that intimacy with him. As Mary worships Jesus with her all, she manages to offend Judas. Uh, he starts speaking uh, from verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Mary is there worshipping Jesus with her all, and it offends Judas. It offends Judas because he wants some of that, basically. Uh, not that he wants perfume, uh, put on his feet, uh, but he wants to be able to take some of the money for it. He's greedy and he's selfish. But he raises a valid question uh, that we may have heard. He just raises it uh, from a selfish heart rather than a good one. Why do we give uh, so much money to the church uh, in worship of God when there are so many people out there who are poor and in desperate needs? Uh, this question uh, will often come to us from outside the church, uh, looking at the, uh, the buildings that churches have or the institutions that they've had or, or how they've been at work uh, throughout history and thought, okay, you Christians are meant to be nice people. Why don't you just give it all away? And why do you spend money uh, on these things? I, I reckon it's also probably a live question that many of us have been considering in relation to the Kintore building at the moment. Okay, we're going to spend 
uh, so much money on a building. But we look around us uh, and we see a cost of living crisis and we see people in deep hurt and deep need. And the fact that it is Judas raises this question does not, uh, should not make us uh, immediately distract ourselves from that question because it can be valid. What we are to do is to lay our money and all we have before God and listen to him as he points us to how to use it. And that may be in giving to a church building, it may be giving to a poor, it may be a combination, it may be uh, giving to church, it will be giving to so many things. And part of the freedom of being a Christian is that we have the conscience before God to decide how we do that. What we do not have the freedom to do is to be selfish with it. To look at the money we have and say, I'm not going to give to that and what I'm going to do instead is just keep it for myself. To say, I'm not sure if that's a good thing and just keep it. And so you can, uh, if you, uh, with good conscience before God, lay your money before him and he tells you uh, to give it all um, to this great cause or that great cause, then that's wonderful and that's beautiful. He will not say, keep it for ourselves and be selfish. With our money, with all that we have, when we recognize what Jesus has given to us, we will feel free and compelled to give it all back to him. The second part of our story is the plot to kill Lazarus. And this is a far briefer part. And here we see a man whose identity has also been completely shifted by his relationship to Jesus. Now see how Lazarus is described in our passage, uh, described twice in verse 1 and in verse 9, as Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. It's like he's got a new last name that's really long, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. That's become his identity. That's how everyone sees him. And so as he uh, walks around, as he goes through his life, his everyday life, he is a witness to what Jesus has done in his life. He is a witness to the resurrection and the life that we saw in John chapter 11. And so we want to uh, ask again the same questions we asked to Mary. Uh, who does he witness about and how does he witness? Well, the one he witnesses about, as I just said, Jesus, the resurrection and the life, the one who gives life. And how? Well, all he does uh, is eat dinner with Jesus and go about his normal life. And he's a witness. And people hear and respond. They respond in two different ways. Some wanting to kill him and some going and believing in him. He's able to be such an effective witness uh, just in his normal everyday life because he's got a remarkable story to tell. He's got a remarkable story of how Jesus has raised him from the grave. Uh, now, I don't think many of us have uh, such a miraculous story of Jesus physically raising us from a grave yet. You may, uh, if you have been a Christian for a long time, have heard some pretty remarkable testimonies of people who have been plucked out of the deepest, darkest pits and brought into life in Jesus. You may have, uh, to some extent, felt slightly jealous of those if, if we have a rather uh, boring testimony. But we know, and we do celebrate that for each and every Christian, they are a Christian who has been raised from the grave, from being dead in sins by Jesus Christ, and who has a testimony uh, in the future where they will be able to look forward to being raised physically from the grave to be with him. 
Each of us has a story of being transformed by Jesus. And so as we go about our everyday lives, as we go to work or school or college, or wherever we go, I really hope and pray that people will be able to see something different there. That they'll be able to see a life that has been transformed. And that they will respond. Uh, just being present uh, as a witness is not uh, an excuse we get to use to not use our words to speak about Jesus. But I hope that so many of these conversations will start as we reflect him in our different places that we go to. Now, as we witness about Jesus, uh, just like in the story of Lazarus, it may offend. Across the world, uh, we know that it's led to persecution for so many. And for so many, gathering to worship on a Sunday uh, means that they could be dead the next day. Having a Bible in our home can lead uh, to a concentration camp. We know the church across the world is persecuted and uh, we don't face anything near as bad as that here. But it is hard. There are lots of environments we go as a Christian, we might try to speak of Jesus and the opposition is great and the humiliation can be very real. But I want us to take comfort in one thing. Uh, look what those who uh, were offended by Lazarus came to do. They came with plans to put him to death. Look what Jesus came to do to Lazarus. He gave him life. Uh, John 10.10, 10, that famous verse, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus has come that we may have life and life to the full. Today, the world may not like you if you speak on Jesus. I imagine in 10 years, it will like you even less. But in all of its pressure and persecution, all it will bring is death. But we trust in the one who brings life, Jesus. Jesus gave his all to Mary and gave his all to us. Jesus raised us from the grave. And so as we respond in worship to him, we give him back to him our all. We witness about him, the one who raised us. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for all that you have given us. That you have given us your presence. That the Lord Jesus has given up his life for us. That he has raised us from the grave. Lord, help us as we uh, dwell in these things and soak in these things to give our all back to you. To lay our whole selves before your feet and cry out, Lord, what will you do with this? to give you our all as you have given us your all. Lord, help us to go in boldness and faith and expectancy as we witness about you, as we show through our lives and our words that we have been raised from the grave by Jesus. And Lord, we pray that the conclusion of that story will be the same as ours, that there are many who will go away and believe in Jesus. Lord, we would absolutely love for the fragrance uh, of this city, of this nation, uh, to fill uh, the whole world with the perfume of worship of Jesus. That you will receive uh, glory in all places and by all people. That you will save so many. Amen.